Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Rolling. Take one. Is it going to be alright? Well, hello, and welcome to Alter a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And on this little episode, our 74th, we're talking to Travis Kennedy, photographer and publisher of Better Off Scene. For our main feature, we'll tell you the story of the nearly forgotten yet wildly influential Margreta Mather. And that means we'll have to talk about Edward Weston too. So apologies all around. We've also got some zine reviews and maybe even the answering machine. Where you come from is gone and where you thought you were going weren't never there. It's time for another episode of All Through Lens. Oh, but first, Vanya. Uh, Yels. How have you been? <laughs> Fairly well. Kind of feel like I'm trucking along oh. like everybody else, I'm sure. Uh, I'm still unsure how I do all the things I do. You know, like <laughs> when you go on vacation and then you start thinking about going back to work and you're like, oh my God, like how do I do all this? That's kind of how I feel all the time right now. Okay. But you're not on so, vacation. I know. <laughs> so what do you, like, what are you dreading coming back to? I just feel like I'm slightly like schlepping along just like barely, like okay. barely on time, but slightly late always <laughs> true but that shouldn't be anything new to you no it's not okay. but i think i'm just having some self-realizations because why not it's that time of the year and it's an odd time to self-reflect okay well um uh happy holidays i guess <laughs> yeah exactly i'm not like a traditional holiday person i find myself like looking inward and kind of trying to figure out what I can do differently. <laughs> okay. I, it never works, but I try. I will say that photography has been one of those great tools that I have used to kind of like make me a normal-esque person. Yeah. So I find that maybe just reexamining my work, my photography has um, been really kind of soothing and great to decide where I'm going to go from here, if that makes any sense. <laughs> Does that make sense? It makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like trying to step out of my my comfort zone and trying to create more like impactful images. So maybe not just photographing because I have to photograph for dev party or whatever. Like I really, I really want to like pay attention and just be like super mindful mm -hmm. of the shots that I take. So that's kind of like what I'm working on right now. And I mean, whatever. It is what it is. I have been dealing with depression most of my life. And it's been kind of hitting differently these days. I don't know if you've heard the last few episodes, but kind of sound like a crazy person, <laughs> maybe a little bit more than usual. Okay. And I kind of feel like I need to be brutally honest <laughs> with everybody about it. I can't just sit here and pretend like everything's fine because everything is not fine always. It's just not how it is. So I've been very overwhelmed. I'm 
trying my best to kind of get through this time in my life. Uh, I will be switching my antidepressants uh, next month, which I'm really excited about and try try to do something a little bit different. Uh, I've been going into like group therapy and trying to care and love my body more than I have in many, many years. I think that has a lot to do with just like me getting older as well and realizing like how stupid it was that for the past, like, I don't know, decades, <laughs> I was so hard on myself and everything needed, oh, I needed to five pounds more. Well, I need to, if I could just lose 10 more pounds and then I would be happy instead of just maybe being happy with who I am right now. So um, yeah, that's what's going on. I am struggling a bit. But I am still the same me. I am really good at hiding all my sadness usually. But I just felt like it's kind of that time of year where there's a lot of people kind of going through the same thing, whether they've lost family or they don't have family to spend the holidays with. So I just wanted to say that you're not alone. I think that it's really important that we all try to be better to ourselves and love ourselves more and be honest with ourselves as well. And I think I just got to a point where I feel like I have been so overwhelmed and trying to do everything and not taking care of myself. So kind of switching that around, going to take care of myself a lot better. So yay for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yay for you. I mean, for the good parts, the bad parts, not, not so much. Yeah. I mean, Eric's been dealing with it for, he knows, he's behind the scenes. He's seen me. Yeah, I mean, I can people, I, I can see the people like listening to this going, oh my God, he's not saying anything. Does he not give a shit? <laughs> like, no, I've, no, I've, no, no. I've known about this for a little while now. Yeah, I've, there's been many tears of shed when we're not recording. <laughs> yeah, I wiped them all up though. I'm fine. Don't worry, guys. I'm okay. I only cry a little bit. That's a lie. <laughs> <sighs> so anyways, that's, there there it is the the truth the the whole truth <laughs> and nothing but the truth so eric <sighs> tell us how you have been. how do you follow something like that though sorry <laughs> <laughs> i've been great best week ever <laughs> that's what you're supposed to say <laughs> oh god and i have like you know behind the scenes peek we we, we take notes on what we're going to talk about I, I usually read Vanya's. I did not this time around. It was a text <laughs> chunk, and those are hard to get through. You know, just big, like a big block of text. It's really hard to get through. I know. Well, because usually I didn't ask you to edit. No, it. no. <laughs> so yeah, it's it is just one chunk of words. Yeah, I, I won't edit unless I'm asked to or it needs to be done for like, you know, outgoing reasons or something. But honestly, I didn't even really read it. I just kind of went off the cuff. You did. Yeah, I followed <laughs> along a little bit, but you, I think you held to it pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. Ooh, pretty look well. at me. I'm like almost like a professional. So yeah, actually, I want to bring that up. You, okay. okay. I was reading along with you and you were saying a lot of it pretty much word for word. And I could tell you were reading because I could see your eyes reading it, but you didn't sound like you were reading something. And that was kind of cool. Remembering like both of us on like the first episode we've ever done. I'm never going back there. It was no, there's no reason to listen to those. No. <laughs> but we both never. sounded pretty bad. And and I think yeah. over the three years we've gotten pretty good at, at sounding like we're not reading stuff, even if we're reading. Yeah. I mean, obviously like the long pieces, the, the the essays, we're clearly reading something because it would be silly not to. But for mm -hmm. like the banter stuff, like everything I'm saying now, I'm reading off from like a, a, like a teleprompter. 
It's pretty amazing. I'm really You're such a good liar. At this. <laughs> Even oh, the, the such a liar was was scripted in there. We are 100% scripted. I know. It's really great, honestly. This new teleprompter app is fantastic. Yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm. So, I guess I've been taking stock of the photozines that I've collected over the yes. past couple of years and I put them in this like huge box. It's like a huge box. I have like tiny little noodly arms and it's hard to carry this. You should weigh it. It's It weighs a lot. I'd say probably around 30 pounds. It's not that heavy. Oh, around, that's around not that bad. Pounds. Well, it's, you know, it's a lot of, oh my God. <sighs> so zines come in all shapes and sizes. So putting them on like a shelf is tough to do, especially when you have a cat who's an asshole. Mm-hmm. And it's basically out of the question then. A few are like always in the coffee table, mm-hmm. but the vast majority of them end up in this pile beneath like one of the bookshelves. It's, oh, no. It's the pile. I have them kind of strewn about. There's some like everywhere. There's some in the bathroom. There's like some on coffee tables. There's some in bookshelves. There's some in magazine. I have this little like magazine rack thing with like books and there's some in there. Oh, wow. Like, they're everywhere no no mine i try to keep them in in like generally the same spot i'll have like the ones we're using for the podcast of those around me but the ones that we have already done on the podcast they go into the pile so mm-hmm. i've been wondering what to do with them i've got two boxes now maybe a hundred zines or so i haven't really counted Amazing. i think it's probably i have i think i, I feel like i have more than that yeah but... it kind of seems like more than that and yeah. i'm going to keep some and if uh, if you're listening and I've gotten one of your zines, I am absolutely keeping that one. But I don't know what to do with the rest. Yeah, I'm thinking the the COC ones got to go. Not worth keeping those around. So I had this idea, right? I live in an area, Seattle, with a bunch of the little free libraries, the cute little mm-hmm. wooden structures that have a door on yes. them. Yeah, you know. And so people can come up to the curb and they can pick up books and they can leave off books. Yes. And I think I might put some zines in a few of these. I think that's a good idea. I think so too. I don't want to just dump them all into one because that's kind of rude and horrible. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to hit up a number of them on my travels around town. And then when I go on like day trips and longer away, I'll take some zines with me so that like others outside of our little film community bubble, they get a chance to see what we're doing out here. Yeah, no, that's great. So like I kind of, have an idea of what I was going to do with mine because I love them. I don't really want to get rid of them, but I also want to have like the everything I like store one of these days. Someday it's coming. Someday. And so I've actually been looking into, and I know (laughs) this is ridiculous, but you know, like those candy machines with the little spiral things and you like put like B4. Yeah. Those like, I want one because I want to put zines in it. And so like for a dollar or two dollars or whatever, like maybe the bigger ones on the bottom, but it's basically like a little kiosk with like zines that would be in a store somewhere. Yeah. I I like the idea. I I wonder if, I wonder if you could get like the bigger ones in there at all. There's different ones. I mean, honestly, I was looking at like old cigarette machines too, because I love those things so much. Like old cigarette machines are my favorite thing ever. They'd be great Um, for like quarter size zines. But nobody does those. Yeah. They're like little eighth size zines. I've gotten some recently that are a little bit on the small side, I would say. <laughs> but I'm really excited. And honestly, anybody that got a zine during the holiday, like 20% thing sale, I actually made 
a handmade little mini zine that went inside. Oh, really? So yeah, someone got like, I think two people bought bought it. So I made, I was like, perfect. That's plenty. Oh, that's really great. I, I didn't do anything special other than I gave it a 25% off discount, but I didn't do anything special apart from that. Well, the color zine was like really expensive to purchase. I did it with like a different company. So I had to charge like a lot more this time, which I don't really like. No, I'm not a fan so of So I feel but... like I'm reassessing the way that I, like I kind of want to make stuff, but I also kind of just want to keep it more punk rock. So I'm going to figure it out. Yeah, I'm, I'm in there too. I'm thinking about making a, a wider divide between what I consider books and what I consider zines. I, mean, I want the books to be a lot nicer. We'll see where that all goes. Uh, well, we were going to start the show, but I'm seeing, well, here's a little peek behind the curtain. We're recording on a Wednesday. It is Wednesday, what, November 30th. So tomorrow, Ilford has announced that they're going to be announcing something. They say, coming soon, and are you ready? And we will know this tomorrow in our time. By the time you're listening to this, you will already know the news of what's mm -hmm. coming. So- what we're going to do is we're going to invite future Eric and Vanya to come on this podcast, which this might be their first appearance on this podcast. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 It'd be really nice to hear from them. And if, <laughs> we'll hear from them if the news is worth talking about. If mm -hmm. it's not, I will just insert a fart noise right here and move on. Well, hey. We are oh, hey. kind of getting fancy here with this uh, coming up into the big times with the, with the main episode, not just being yeah. shoved into the smaller, tiny dev party episodes. No farting either. Okay. So as everybody probably knows by this point, Ilford has announced that they are releasing Kentmere 100 and 400 in 120. And that is yeah. good news. I mean, people seem... Genuinely happy about it, but I think. Oh my God, it's amazing news. Shut up. It's amazing news. It's so exciting. Yes. It's good. But we have our own reasons for being maybe a little happier about this than we might normally be. Well, maybe you. I don't know. I'm not part of your conspiracy theories, flat earth people, but I'm going to say that if you've been listening since the beginning, I have mentioned Kent Mir quite a lot of being an amazing emulsion. I am super pumped. I can't wait to get my grubby little hands on some rolls when I have some money. Well, speaking of money, it is now the cheapest 120 film out there. But in most places, it's about a quarter to 10 cents cheaper than Arista, what is it, Edu Ultra, Ultra Edu. That's my go-to is the Arista usually. But this is a little cheaper. And it's also, yes. maybe there's something else a little bit to it. So if you've been listening for a while, there was an emulsion called Ultrafine Extreme. It came like Kentmere in 100 and 400, which caused a lot of people to suspect that Ultrafine 100 and 400 was actually Kentmere. Ultrafine hasn't been available since before the pandemic started. Is that right? Pretty close to that. Yes, because they 
usually would get their orders from school, and that's why they would produce it. That's and right. They were not producing because there was no school happening. So there have been tons and tons of rumors that Ultrafine is coming back. These rumors were mostly propagated by Ultrafine, but that never happened. And so now this happens. Ilford releases Kent Mirror 100 and 400 and 120. So I did a little poking around at the dev times and formulas listed by Ilford for the new Kent Mirror stuff. They coincidentally are all of the same times and formulas as Ultrafine listed when they sold their, their emulsion. <gasps> all of the Ilford developers, there's ID11, Micro... Microfin? Micro what? What is it? Fen? Sure. Ilfotech LC25? Yes. Ilfotech is five, And then there's Ilfosol 3. All of them match all of the times. Oh, curious. Very curious. So my thought is that Cantmere 100 and 400 is at least incredibly close to Ultrafine 100 and 400. I've seen a lot of the pictures from it, and I'm sure you guys have as well. And if you compare it to how Ultrafine 400 especially looked, it looks very, very close to that, if not identical to it. So I have already ordered uh, probably too many rolls. I'm very excited about it. My preferred way of, of developing it was PMK. And I did enjoy pushing Ultrafine, or I guess a uh, Kentmere 400, to 3,200. It pushes very, very well. Nice. Yes, even though Ilford is kind of iffy on pushing it too far. That's great news. Very exciting for everybody in the film photography community. It's always good to just have more film. It is. And this is not a rebrand or anything like that. It is a, a essentially a new or at least a unique emulsion. And that's always welcomed. Well, yeah, they, they've been making Kempmere for many moons. Yeah. First stuff I shot in the water because it was cheap. Mm -hmm. So excited. So yeah, this is going to be great. I'm going to put it back in the water. It would be even greater if they would make 220 for me. But I mean. Hey, they're, they've got so much going on right now. One, uh, 220 might be a part of that. And hopefully at some point, four by five. There we are. Why don't we just send it back to, who are they? Present? Very weirdo people <laughs> from the past. Take it away, weirdos. Each episode, we put on our cozy house slippers and our cozy-er cardigans. Maybe a ward. A ward? Perhaps. What's a ward? Yeah. Like a Montgomery Ward cardigan. You know, V-neck action. Okay. I've had a few Montgomery Wards. Yeah, dude. That, those are like the staple. You got to have those. Uh, yeah. Well, absolutely. burgundy, probably, I'm going to assume. but Probably. Whatever. Yeah. Or maybe like a mustard yellow would be I've nice. I've definitely had a, a mustard yellow Montgomery Wards. Yes. And I'm thinking like corduroy, like house slipper, okay. you know, with the with the backs folded down, the, the kind that you used to get at like save on for like three dollars. Sure. Those are the ones. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you put those on and you shuffle in and push that um, beautiful, beautiful machine that uh, is an answering machine. It's it's usually plastic, but it looks like wood. Yeah, it could be wood on the top. No, that wood is plastic, too. Yeah, it's kind of got the panel vibes. It's 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 very like vacation station wagon style. This is the new wagon queen family truckster. This is a this is a damn fine automobile. So we ask listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird ass question we come up with. So the question this past week was: Tell us about your muse, your source of inspiration. Let's push the button. 
We can't very well get along without the telephone today, and we can't very well have a telephone without an operator. I guess that's right. And when you're ready to begin operating, there's an experienced person with you from then on. I'd sort of hoped she would be. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Hi, guys. Michael here. So, like many photographers, I get inspired by photo books, zines, some Instagram accounts, and a few photographers I know in real life. Uh, but also recently I've been quite inspired by podcasts and not to sound too corny by yours, especially. Uh, all the things I've mentioned previously mainly inspire me to shoot day-to-day -day or help me shape my style a little bit. While the stories I've heard on this channel were one of the things that helped me pull the trigger and go to my first mini solo photography backpacking trip in the mountains. And it was like beyond amazing. I've never been so eager to see the shots back. So, well, thanks guys. That's us. It was. That's, that makes me so happy. Yeah, I don't- I, I can don't, die and be happy now. I don't want to be playing around violin here, but I, I think sometimes People like what we do, and that's kind of a neat mm. thing to recognize. Honestly, and everybody should like what they do as well. I we kind of had this like a very mini conversation off mic about just like this whole like thing with like film photographers and digital photographers. Oh, and it's yeah. so ridiculous. Like honestly, do shoot what you want, do what you want. You want to do it, you want to cross process, you want to soup, you want to shoot digital and film, you want to only shoot this. Do whatever makes you inspired and happy, and I support it. Yeah, and, and most importantly, <laughs> let people do whatever they want as well. Oh, true. That's like a, yes. a, the second part to that is yeah. we don't give a shit what you do. <laughs> don't give a shit what we do. Ooh, I have a really neat story. Very short, Are you sure? promise. Okay. I was on the highway yesterday. Mm -hmm. I was going down the highway, <laughs> looking for adventure, <laughs> no, not... seeing whatever came my way. You said this was going to be short. Now you're singing. <laughs> what is going on here? So Silvio from Silvio's cameras called me and was like, hey, I have this this lady in here and she really wants to shoot four by five. And I can I give her your phone number? And I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I would love to talk to her. And she's like, oh, are you driving? And I was like, actually, I am. He's like, how close are you? I was like, eh, about like 25 minutes. And he's like, do you want to come and meet her? I was like, yes, I do. I was like, it's a film photography emergency. <laughs> oh, did you say that? Oh, maybe you did. I think I said so that. So <laughs> I went and I met her and she was amazing. She was so incredible. And oh, I was cool. trying my best to tell her that she could definitely shoot four by five and that it is possible. I did mention that it's going to be a little pricey in the beginning because, you know, you're going to need to develop. You're going to need to scan if you want to cut costs. So there's a big amount of money in the beginning, but it is possible. And I think it's just so important to encourage people like you could tell like the sparkle in her eyes when she talked about it. It was like so exciting to hear. So I was just like, yes, you can. You could totally do this. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you some things too. So yay. That's awesome. That's really cool. Did yeah. you tell her about the podcast? Of course. Okay, good. <laughs> Dark. <laughs> so thank you, Michael. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, like, like hiking into the woods with a camera for like a backpacking trip. Honestly, 
one of the coolest things you can do. Just being outdoors with a camera, honestly. Overnight, especially. Like when you're when you're untethered from yeah. that safety net of, of coming home to your soft, warm bed. Hey, Eric and Vanya. It's uh, Mike over at Crapperture on Instagram. My muse lately has been really the people in my life. I've been doing a lot more portraits. Uh, after the Thanksgiving holiday, I took like a million pictures of friends and family, and I've really loved that. I've also started self-developing black and white, which has been creatively so fun, just messing around with developed times and different film stocks, and it's really kept me, kept things feeling fresh. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. I guess it should go without saying that if you do portraits, you're inspired by the people in your life, but I don't think it does, because I've seen some pretty crummy, uninspired portraits before. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But it it's usually with the people that you care about, you're going to photograph them differently because there's a comfort level there that you may have that you might not have with a stranger. See, I could, I don't take portraits. I have never, I never really have done it, you know? So I don't really, I can't really speak to that at all, but I could see me being like relaxed and comfortable enough around people I know to just kind of take some candid shots. I could see that happening somehow. I'm not sure how but that might somehow happen. But being inspired by people in your life in like a direct, like A equals B sort of photographic way, if that makes any sense. And I don't think it does, but I don't know. I'm not sure I feel that, which is kind of a bummer. I wish I did. So I'm a little jealous of the second mic here. You know how like they say that if you're nervous, you should think about everybody naked. I wonder if nope. that works it's just on with TV. photography. No, it, it doesn't work. <laughs> like, you know what? This portrait's going to be more comfortable if you take all your clothes off. I think you're entering into different territory here. <laughs> and this is the episode where Vanya becomes a bro. Yes. Okay. Uh, with that, let's let's please move on to the next. Hey, guys. It's Suzanne. I had to take a while to really think about this question because I think it's such a good question about what is who or what is my muse and I came to the conclusion that it changes over time when I very first started photography my children were 100% my muse my girls I couldn't get enough of it they completely were what inspired me and when they got older and no longer wanted to be my muse um, I sort of lost a vision for a long time. And I can happily say that I have now found it in other places. And I don't think I can define it to any one thing anymore. So the world around me, as Vanya knows, I am obsessed with surf photography, yet it is something that I don't shoot. I also am obsessed with skate photography, but that's also something that I don't shoot. So I guess that I get inspiration and my muse is definitely very eclectic and not necessarily directly related to what or how I shoot. I feel like there's so many people, just the past couple interviews, I'm totally inspired by our guests. It's amazing. But my work is definitely not like theirs at all. But finding inspiration in other people's work and making it your own is perfect. I look at a lot, of the, a lot of the books that I've been buying. So much of the photography is of people. Mm -hmm. And there's almost nothing landscape that I'm that I'm looking at at this point. But that's mostly but the what human I body is a landscape. Mm -hmm. <laughs> God, no. I'm sorry. 
I get it what Susan said about her kid, too, because Marley has been like anti-photos. And then I took those photos. I don't know if you saw them, but those color photos. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And she's like, you can take pictures of me like anytime. I forgot how much I liked it. (laughs) Great. That's wonderful. I've moved on. (laughs) Oh, you moved on from Marley now. I see how it is. I'm just kidding. No, I love photographing her. She's fun. Hey there, Eric and Vanya. David calling in again. And I actually had to look up what Muse meant because I didn't exactly know the full definition. In simple terms, I would say my family and my friends um, with candids and stuff like that, portraits were my Muse. But I would say it's it's because I looked it up and it said personified force. So in the examples of architecture of how people left their inspiration in it, or even simpler things like a poster or something you find on the street or somebody's trash or just random stuff. It's like just the personification of human life on the planet, I guess, if you want to go like super into it. But yeah, I mean, people are weird. People are normal. People are people are people. So it's like taking those moments and seeing it for how it is and not something that's staged or um, planned kind of what I was was working my way through saying on the last one. I look at a lot of photos that aren't landscapes or aren't, you know, old buildings or whatever the fuck I shoot. But in what I do shoot, I do look for that humanity. I'm not a huge fan of just taking a, here's a, a picture and there's nothing but natural stuff in it. I, I take a few of those, but that's not my thing. Yeah, you definitely like to shoot decay. You're you're into decay. Well, not even. Yeah, I guess, but I mean, it's more. Here's how people have interacted with the, with nature, and I like that. I like the interaction of of. We could get into the argument whether humans are natural and all of that, and I'm never ever going to get into that argument. But I like that interaction, and so getting that inspiration from humanity, like in things, like he said, architecture, seeing like, okay, a person created this, and that's pretty fucking amazing. And I yeah. see the same thing in like an old like homesteading shack. You know, it's obviously a, a different kind of architecture, but I see it in, in in roads too. Roads are especially that, you know? Yes, they are. Originally they were were carved out by by people just looking to get from one place to another in an easy way. I like seeing the humanity in those things. I have been traveling a lot more this past not really like far, just like kind of getting out of my area and going actually to the Orange Curtain, Orange County like area, like beaches oh. down there, surfing down there. Oh, sure, sure. Which is which is weird uh, because I fucking hate it there. <laughs> and the reason why I hate it there is mostly because so much of it is new and planned and perfect and mall island and mall island and, and palm tree and this. And it's like kind of like this, like I feel very like, not well there because there's no mistakes and it pisses me off. Like I'm like, (laughs) I need some spray paint. I need a road where like five roads come into an intersection weird where they like messed up in planning. I want potholes. I want old brick buildings mixed with other things. I just, I like, I like those types of places. Oh, you would love Philly then. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think I would really like it there. Yeah. I have to go there anyways because I got to get my camera back from Kevin at some point. So I'm planning it. It's a bummer <laughs> that the mail service doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it does, but then also I could just like make that excuse to go get my camera. It's true. Hi, this is Jody, longtime listener, first time caller. 
inspiration for me and I assume uh, it's like this for other people, but inspiration for me is kind of a big one because it is what I struggle with the most, just generally finding a reason to get up and go shooting. And it used to be enough for me to be inspired by the gear, like the cameras themselves, or even the film. And like I don't mean like Portrait 400, brah. I mean more like something super simple, like I like black and white photos. Like that used to be enough to get me out. But now I'm, it's a little different. I feel lately that I need to be more doing something in general or with my life, but just doing something and documenting it to show the photos to other people. So I guess inspiration can be anywhere for me. Something as simple as seeing a used kayak for sale at some sketchy garage sale. Like, yeah, I would get totally amped up to shoot some photos. Oh my god, I love I love this. Jody, thank you so much for calling in. First time. Do you remember getting inspired by just your gear? Oh fuck yeah. I kind of forgot when about I got, that. When I got the Minolta Hymatic for five dollars, that <laughs> set me like into basically rediscovering film again. Oh, like because sure. I was like, oh, I should just shoot black and white. Cause I remember developing it like in high school. I could do this. Like yeah. I could do this. This is fine. Because uh, that was like, I had my mom's camera, then it, I got bucked off a horse and the horse like smashed it. So yeah, it was like, I was just shooting digital for a couple years. And then I just happened upon this like Minolta and th- I still shoot with it. I love that camera. And honestly, the first pure sand and water um, zine that I did mm-hmm. was actually kind of about the gear a little bit. It was about me like finding all these like, whoa, like I'm finding all these film cameras for like $5, $10 that I could never afford like oh, yeah. 15 years ago. I'm going to get them. <laughs> this is amazing. Oh, <laughs> so, absolutely. Yeah. It, it ruled. It was super fun. I, 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 I miss that. And I'm also glad I moved on from it. I like that, no. that innocence of like, I just want to take pictures with this camera to like, I can use this camera to do something special with. They're two different things, yeah. but I do, there's a part of me that does miss that like that wide, that wide eyed and um, bushy tailed, I guess, <laughs> excitement about photography in that way. To this day, I will get a camera and I'm like, I'm going to do this project with this camera. I'm very, I want to like put a certain thing on each of the cameras sometimes. Oh, sure. It usually doesn't work, but no. It is something that I I kind of obsess over a little bit. So I don't know. Maybe I need to go buy more cameras. <laughs> I mean, that, that does seem to be the case. Yes. All right. And our final. Hey, Eric and Vanya. This is Jess. I'm not going to lie. This was actually a really hard question to answer. Everything I kept coming up with sounded super cheesy. And to be honest, I'm not entirely sure this message will be much better, but I'll give it a go. So for me, I think that inspiration is always evolving and changing. Like when I got my first camera for my ninth birthday, my inspiration came from my parents who photographed absolutely everything. So I carried my little point and shoot everywhere, taking pics of my friends throughout high school and college. Then I started discovering the works of past photographers like Ansel Adams, Dorothea Lange, Andre Kertes, Mary Ellen Mark, which is where my love of black and white photography came from. 
National Geographic magazines have also always fascinated me, not only being able to see different places around the world, as well as different cultures and customs, but it was through these magazines that I started to understand the power of storytelling through photography. Nostalgia has also been another source of inspiration. Sometimes the way that light will hit a subject will remind me of something from my childhood and compel me to take a shot before the moment is lost forever. And most recently, my inspiration has been coming from the film photography community itself. Every time I see Danielle, aka Girl with Too Many Cameras, post a fall landscape, or Allie from Allie's Vintage Camera Alley post one of her beautiful still lifes, I just have to pick up a camera and shoot. So I may have just taken a long walk for a short drink of water, but basically as I evolve as a person and photographer, so does my inspiration. Bye! Jess is my muse. <laughs> wow. It was it was Incredible. a lot to unpack. Yeah, it was. And there's not, she's like so good. She's very well thought out. <laughs> she is very. I, I love the idea of inspiration evolving. Like it like it, that it has to evolve or it's just not inspiring anymore. Like if you're constantly yeah. inspired by this one thing, I don't know if you're inspired anymore or you're just used to doing what you're used to doing. Yeah, maybe just obsessed with a specific thing. Or obsessed, yes. I guess that could be that could be another option. <laughs> but no, yeah, we don't you know, want like that. infatuated like with a style or something. I don't know. No, like, you, you, you should. Know. I mean, you shouldn't like be darting to the next best thing. Like, oh, this is great over no, here. This is great over not. here. This is great over here. Well, that's maybe. Yeah, it, 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 it's sort of. Uh, but taking inspiration from from different places and and being okay with this thing not inspiring you anymore. Yeah, person, places, and things. Well, yes, nouns in general, <laughs> and nostalgia. What could be always? What could be bad about nostalgia? Totally forgot. Do you remember bubble jug? What it was fuck? like a jug of bubble gum that was powder. It was like a powdered like jug of bubble gum. This is like some nineties bullshit, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yes. And uh, you put it in your mouth no, that, <laughs> and make it into gum. That sounds disgusting. I totally forgot about that. That's that's some nostalgia for you. I I guess I don't know what to say. If anybody has some, no, even if it's like 30 years some. expired, I want, I want it. <laughs> Give it to me. <laughs> God, could you like put it on things? Like sprinkle a little bit of that's bubble jug the on thing. Like I'm like kind of thinking maybe that's a thing. I remember the the chew, the big chew, like the purple oh, like, gum the, the, strips. The big chew. Oh, yeah. shit was so good. That's still available. I mean, they have pink and purple. They do. Right? Yeah, it was, it was pink and grape. Grape, yes. yes. I like the grape one. Yeah, I did too. I was not allowed Delish. to have Big League Chew when I was a kid. B why? Well, because everybody, everybody where I grew up with chewed, chewed, chewed tobacco. Yeah. And a lot of them had like the can of skull. Yeah, and, of course. But a lot of did, did they did chew like, you know, Big Red. Yeah. And so you'd have that pouch and my, it was the, the Big League Chew came in that kind of pouch. So it was sort of like, like the chewing tobacco version of candy cigarettes. Yeah. Which, well, so which I, I, was to to, I was allowed to have. I used to go to the liquor store and get candy cigarettes. Like I would cross Inglewood Avenue as like a seven-year-old and go get candy cigarettes. Like get my pack of candy cigarettes for the week. <laughs> so, yeah. Also, I chewed in FedEx a lot with the boys That's when disgusting. we were on the plane. There's like literally nothing more disgusting than chewing tobacco. It is kind of amazing. <laughs> uh, no, it's so much fun. It's fucking nasty. Because everybody who <laughs> chews, they claim they don't do this, but they leave their little 
bottle of spit. There's a bottle yeah. of saliva around, and they claim uh-huh. them to not do this, but they oh, all well, fucking so do. Yes? I'm NorCal over here, so every single water fountain at the high school had chew spit, yep. like, in it. Yep. And all the kids, like, if you had a pair of Wranglers, which you did, because it was, this is very country, uh, you had to have the skull ring fucking mark on the back, on the back pocket. And these are like 16 year old kids with like skull ring yeah. marks. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how can you take smoking and make it more annoying for everybody else and also more disgusting? It's not that annoying though. It, you can't smell it. No, but the spit gets everywhere and they say it doesn't, but it does. Like reaching into their gum and, and pulling it out and then spitting all the tobacco out. Disgusting. Fucking Clean yourself up. <laughs> the bubble jug. Also, I kind of just want to put the whole thing in my mouth and try to chew like all of it at once. Okay. There was this thing and it was like, for some reason, I was obsessed. Like the bubble tape. I just wanted to take a bite of it. Like just like instead of doing strip by strip, I just wanted to take it and just arr, just take a huge bite of it. <laughs> If you want to hear our take on this question, you can listen to the next episode of Dev Party. But until then, Vanya, we did not discuss what the next question is for the next episode. So the next question, I think we'll try something interesting here. A little little test. After the interview, we'll be talking to you about Margareta Mather and uh, Edward Weston. Tell us something that you've learned from it. Something that you could take from their stories and apply to your own life. So call our answering machine and leave us a message. And by call up, we mean go to Instagram and leave us a voice message in our DMs. Get in there. And if we like you very, very much, which we of course do, we will play it on the next episode. The deadline for this is Tuesday, December 13th. Along with being a film photographer and a lab technician, our guest today, Travis Kennedy, is a zine maker. He creates and publishes his own, but he also does something pretty remarkable. He puts out a zine called Better Off. Each issue, the entire issue, is dedicated to a single photographer. It's the zine equivalent to the solo show. We've got him here, so let's talk a zero off. Travis, thank you so much for coming on. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you wound up a photographer. I was born in the late 80s, grew up in the 90s. So film was always around as like a household staple, of like camera shoot during like any kind of events and holidays and stuff. But I didn't really get a niche of like the itch and everything to actually shoot until uh, high school um, when I found a camera on my way home. Uh, it was a little digital point and shoot. You just found it? Yeah, I just found it sitting in the parking lot on the way home. Oh, wow. Uh, empty parking lot, and I checked it to see if I can find, like, see who it is or anything, if I know the person. The card is empty, so I'm like, oh, whatever, it's a free camera for me, I guess. <laughs> my parents saw an, I had an interest in this, so uh, my graduation present was either I can get a car or a camera, so I chose a camera. No wow. way, that's amazing. That's <laughs> yeah. So that's they an odd me choice. In. To be honest, I sh- probably should have looked for the car. But, <laughs> well, it depends on the uh, car. Yeah, but uh, like even to this day, like I don't drive. So oh, <laughs> oh really? Yeah. Okay. So and yeah, I'm about to be 34, and 
never got a license. So yeah, I just cameras. That's wow. That's my life. Yeah, they bought me a DSLR, just whatever consumer grade thing. I thought I was like pro shit. You know, taught myself pretty much how to use it. At least I thought I did. Trying to fake it as much as possible, doing jobs, and then uh, this was around. I graduated in two thousand seven. And then, um, so from that to 2010, I just got burnt out and then just sold everything to my brother who was taking classes at the community college here. He was taking those classes to kind of get me to go back into photography because I told him I'm, I'm done. That's where he started taking like black and white classes and he showed me like, oh, I printed this by hand and stuff. And huh. from 2010 to 2011, I'm like, I don't want to do anything. And then 2012, I ended up rolling into classes and started taking photos there. And that's where I actually developed my first rolls of film and uh, printed by hand for the first time. But yeah, I went there from like 2012 to 2017. Nice. And only like a small portion of that was actually photo classes. And the rest were just a bunch of other art classes, which... The other main one that I took, which was five semesters of gallery operations, oh, cool. which was just curating uh, gallery shows. Neat. Hmm. Yeah. So you do a, a bunch of different kinds of photography. You're kind of, uh, you, you spread yourself out quite a bit. Do you have like different cameras you use for those specific genres, I guess? What's the word for that? There are certain cameras that work better for certain things like portraits or street photography or whatever, but really it's just whatever camera i'm obsessed with at the time for a while there uh i'm gonna butcher it but uh it's uh nikonos or nikonos what how you pronounce that i say nikonos and i think it's nikonos but okay (laughs) yeah i had the third version of that and Mm. that was my main camera for two years i never had shot that thing in water whatsoever it was my (laughs) land camera like walking around every day rain shine so that's so rad yeah, but that camera taught me so much of zone focusing and using Sunny 16. So Yeah, that's my favorite out of all of them. I love the way it feels in my hands. I like the shutter is neat. It's it's such a great camera. And the viewfinder is beautiful as well. Yeah, I had to get used to like firing that shutter because uh, it's like you cock it and fire at the same time, but it goes forward. So I had to hold it kind of like from the top. And like yeah. push in so it doesn't shake. <laughs> so what are you shooting now? Lately, I haven't been shooting much. I've been killing from a uh, really bad sciatica. Oh. So it was crippling. Yeah. I have only shot maybe like five rolls this whole year compared oh, to wow. what I normally do. Yeah. But uh, it's coming up on three years next month. I've had this uh, Leica M3 double stroke mm-hmm. that I picked up at my work. Uh, I work at a camera store. They got one in and they were selling it for $1,000 and we get a discount. So I picked it up for 750 bucks. Oh, Ooh. hell yeah. That's not bad at all. So it was just <laughs> right place, right time, right price. So I wasn't Absolutely. even for it. Well, so one thing I really enjoy about your work is the texture and the grain uh is this intentional choice in film or development or both uh it kind of goes back to when i was learning uh how to like develop and everything um i remember reading we had like a chart that said like the do's and don'ts of like developing which was one of them was like don't agitate aggressively i was like fuck that i'm gonna try that and then (laughs) that's 
because it like adds like, too much grain, like more grain or mm-hmm. something. So I'm like, yeah. oh, well, let me try that. And so when I ag- I develop my own stuff, I am more aggressive with my agitations with it. It's just the way I've been doing it for years now, and it gives me the results I like. Mm-hmm. Um, at work, obviously, I have to be a lot easier with it and even and also going into like editing and everything because I do edit my scans going into the whole mindset that my professors gave me was like you need to edit your scans because it's going to be super flat you need to look at it as an approach of you are printing in the dark room I would always add contrast to stuff for certain scenes I would make sure my I like white I like whites but there has to be a little bit of some kind of tone in there Uh, at least I try Mm-hmm. Um, but I love crushed blacks for the most part. So, so what emulsion do you feel gives you that? For a while there, I was mostly shooting like HP five push to stop because mm-hmm. it gives me a lot of flexibility. Then I was shooting like FE four for a while and stuff. It's just a lot of the contrasts and the editing as well. Mm-hmm. I've been shooting a lot of Fomapan because it's just cheap. Other than that, in my bulk loader right now, I have Oro UN fifty four. Oh, cool. Love that emulsion. Yeah. Absolutely love it. I fell in love with that. And then uh, the one that I really love from them is their N75, N74. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I used to get that. And I, was, I found out that it was the Berlin film that Lomography was bulking up. So I have two rolls of that left. So tell us what a typical day looks like for a lab tech. Typical day for me would be go in, I check in all the film that came in the day before from all five of our stores in California. Then after I checked all that in, I take it all down to the basement and I nice. go into a room that we made into a dark room, which is concrete floors and two concrete walls. <laughs> yeah. So prepping is uh, pulling the film out for 35 and then 120. I usually break the seal and then retape it over with a little pull tab that I have so it makes it easier in the dark for what I'm doing it's usually about 18 to 24 rolls for each batch but uh, I have this uh, rack so I can technically hold 30 but I don't like going more than 24 so I'll go turn off the light I'm in pitch black room and my only reference is a gray lab timer in the corner of our sink our main stores in Colorado, they switched over to D76. They wanted me to switch over to that. And I'm like, hell no, (laughs) I don't like mixing that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really want to do powder, but the best option was a powder at the time because they wanted me to stick with Kodak. And so I was like, give me Xtal. Because it's easier to mix, it's safer. Uh, It's basically just vitamin C for the most part. Actually, I always feel like I'm making Tang. He's a developer at stock, so we don't Mm -hmm. dilute it. Most of the film's in like a seven-minute development time, which is going to be all my HV5 and all my Tri-X. But yeah, so I go through the whole process of uh, developer, stop, fix. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I kind of use a uh, slightly modified, you know, Ilford rinse. They really wanted me to, at start, like running just water. Especially with those four-gallon tanks, like, it's kind of a pain in the ass. That's a lot of water. Yeah, I can't believe yeah. people still do that. That's so old school. Yeah, the rinsing is just photo flow and then hang it up in the cabinet that we made, uh, which holds uh, 36 rolls of film. Is that the drying cabinet? I want one of those. Yeah, it's drying cabinet. Yeah, they just got a this plastic cabinet that was meant for just storage and stuff and we cut holes in it and put two fans in there and one goes in, one goes out and that's good. 
Oh, there you go. How do you nice. keep lint out of that? Yeah, we put a filter on top, so then it just filters it. Uh, it's the one Smart. going in, so it's, yeah, so dust doesn't go in. You mentioned that basically there's an uptick in film processing over the past few years. When you first started developing, how many roles, and now how many roles is it? We first started, we were just testing out phase. We're just our store, so we were doing maybe like 12 to 20 roles in a week. And then when we switched over to all five stores, it was anywhere from like 200 to 300 in like a month. Wow. Okay. We do 110, 35 millimeter, 120, 220, and then I do four by five as well. What's your least favorite to do? 110. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Uh, still real too. So yeah. yeah, I only have one and I'm like, it's a pain yep. in the ass. And I have one customer that he drops off. He drops off like three or four at a time. <laughs> yeah, it's not fun. So just in the last four months, I'm up to 650 to 750. Yeah. Well, maybe if the prices keep going up, you'll have fewer customers. <laughs> Uh, everyone can't get color in like the last four months. Everyone's switching over now to black and white. A lot of people are like, no, I just want to shoot color. Now they're actually shooting black and white. Yeah. And it's just uh, podcasts and uh, music all day. So Sounds amazing, actually. So let's talk a little bit about Better Off Zine. <laughs> Where did that come from? How did that come about? I'm going to say it was uh, 2018. Yeah. Uh, I started a uh, film collective called... Uh, Holy Green Film Collective. I was trying to get that going with doing like zines and shows and everything, but no one was really on the same page, uh, especially during the pandemic. So I kind of just didn't see anyone else wanting to do that. So I ended up separating from that, mm -hmm. trying to go do my own thing. I was like constantly getting um, people asking me like, where do you go to get your stuff printed? How do you do this for zines? So I was like, screw it. Let me just do it because i was seeing at the time within like a month period i was seeing a bunch of people doing the same thing i'm pretty much doing like uh tour dogs uh themselves press uh which are like two of my huge big influences with this and there's some others i was like you know i i need to do this myself i want to do other people's stuff but i didn't really know how to approach it so i'm like screw it let me just put out my own stuff first to kind of get it going and if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out and but if it does, you know, at least that will pay for the next one. It did pretty decent. So I'm like, all right, hit up some friends. And only one of them actually sent me some stuff. So uh, that was the second issue. I went from there. I just snowballed from there. The first three were people that are local that I'm friends with. And then everyone after that were uh, just people I've known online. When you start collaborating with somebody for this, how does that come about? Either they've approached me or I have actually a huge list on my phone of people that I want to work with. The whole thing I wanted to do was print these zines and I don't want the artist to have to pay for their copy or other copies that they can potentially give away or sell. So what I do is uh, I give them 16 copies, uh, one for themselves and then 15 for them to sell, trade or give away, whatever. So that way they make money off of it. So, cause I think it's screwed up to have someone pay for their own work. Yeah, so. that's yeah, I don't know why it's not like a normal practice. I guess I'm just too nice or what, but um, <laughs> probably I have a bunch of your zines and they're just really well curated, really well done. It's kind of exciting. So do you feel 
a greater responsibility with selecting and arranging other people's photos uh, than you do with your own? Uh, kind of, I guess. Um, kind of goes back to when I was saying earlier with the, uh, the government operations class I did. So I'm used to like basically taking the same approach of I'm curating this work. In the last couple months, I've been looking at the scenes I've made of my own work and of other people. And I'm like, oh, these are like little galleries basically I've made. So, and that's my approach going forward is my like mindset. Like I want to make sure that the artist is happy with what they're getting out of this and stuff. Cause I want to make sure that their work is being shown the way they want it. But so if they have any like concerns or anything, or they want to change anything, they can feel like, feel free. Let me know stuff anyone I'm working with my own work it's just cool this is the way I want it who cares but Mm -hmm. yeah I would almost think that like it might be easier for me to curate somebody else's work because it's like not my own I feel like with mine have I struggle really hard with like making decisions (laughs) yeah if it's my own work I usually print it all out and then I just take everything off of a wall of mine and just post everything up and it's usually up there for like a month to three months slowly just move stuff around and how how does your schooling play into your selection of photos and artists for the zine Uh, my selection is just i like their work personally so i feel like they should be shown and a lot of them are artists that might not have actually shown before or uh they might like, uh, especially during the earlier ones, like the first two that I put out, they weren't mine. Um, they've never made anything before or shown their work before, but they were kind of interested in doing this. And so I was like, oh, just let me do it. You took a huge load off of them, honestly, because I remember making like my first like actual just photo zine and it was insane. I was like working on it overnight like seven hours like like i can't make decisions it was like so hard so it's kind of incredible that you you did that for those people (laughs) yeah i know um the uh second issue that came out uh was buddy frank's and like as soon as he saw the proof of the first like the first initial proof he started working on his own and he would come back to me with feedback and stuff and then he released his right after that one came out nice nice got him pumped (laughs) yeah so what's the main goal of better off and where would you like to see it go in the future get other people's work into as many people's hands as possible like i said it was like a lot of people that might not have shown their work before so they might not actually show their work ever if i might not be the one that you know does this for them so and then uh kind of where I wanted to go further. Uh, I've been kind of playing with the idea of either changing the format within like the next like couple issues, probably like five issues down to either add in multiple artists in it or actually just do a separate thing alongside mm. with about like four artists or something. But mm. I don't know if I'm actually going to do that or not because that's just going to be more money, more stress. Periodicals. So <laughs> yeah. And so what's the next issue coming out? Uh, next issue would be uh, actually Vanya's <laughs> issue. So. I totally snuck in that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw her typing down yeah. here. I'm like, okay. <clears throat> well, I think yeah. I know the answer, but uh, I'm going to ask this. 
she was on my list, but she approached me and there we go. Uh, I'm actually really excited with this. And uh, actually my roommate, I always get his feedback on stuff and he's like, dude, I absolutely love this. This is like one of my favorites for me. (laughs) So when does Vanya's issue come out? Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, Vanya's issue is going to be number 10. Uh, The last one was with uh, Kevin Daniel. I adore him. He's amazing. He, he makes me mixtapes and I sent him my pacemaker actually. I wondered, I wonder if he got any pacemaker shots in there. Oh, the camera. I'm yeah. Like, not about? my actual pacemaker. That's still in, in <laughs> how, here. How right? are you not the, dead? What's the next project for you? What do, what do you got going on in the works at the moment? Well, with better off, I have like two more in the works after yours. Personally, I have three zines ready to be printed of my own stuff. Wow. Going forward to, I have, so I have three parts and they're all going to be Polaroids. And then I have a fourth part that I'm still working on. that's going to be insects wide. Yeah. Other than those zines, the only thing I have to do is like, I want to just shoot more. So, cause I haven't been shooting at all this year, really. Is there anything else that you wanted to like say, you give us your website, Instagram, all that stuff. Like my Instagram stuff. So uh, personal is uh travis underscore kennedy it's uh kennedy is c-a-n-n-e-d-y and then um where you can find mostly old work on there because uh i've been just reposting some stuff new edits and stuff uh but hopefully new work soon on there and then i do have a personal website which is just the newest stuff on there is from my last zine that I put out, which was, uh, it's just some more fucking mundane shit to look at, which <laughs> was, I am working on a, another web store because I can't sell anything on there except through PayPal on my main oh. account because I got banned from Stripe for technically selling pornography, I guess. Oh my God, you're the second person that we've talked to that that's happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I just listened to that episode recently. Yeah. And I was like laughing so hard in the dark while developing. Uh, God, that's so ridiculous. I'm so sorry. And you can also find Better Off or reach out to me through there on Instagram. It's just at Better Off Zine. And then the website to be able to purchase the zines is betteroffzine.com. And all of those will be up in the show notes. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. It was awesome. <laughs> it was really yeah, My pleasure. My pleasure. No. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all the awesome things you're doing. And um, we'll hopefully catch up with you soon. Absolutely. All right. All right. Thanks a bunch. Bye-bye. The story of Margreta Mather is not a simple story to tell. She was not a simple woman nor a simple photographer. She was an anarchist in every sense of the word and held neither gods nor masters above her. Though wildly creative, she had little ambition for self-promotion, once telling Edward Weston to leave her unremembered, to pretend that I didn't exist. In biographies of Edward Weston prior to the 1980s, if she is mentioned at all, Margreta Mather is hardly more than a footnote. She was thought of as a woman, often naked, who posed for the great Edward Weston. The story of the two of them, together, had been consumed into his story alone, and it is our job to separate them. However, by imaging Cunningham's reckoning, in artistic matters, Margreta was, of course, the teacher, Edward the pupil. 
Margrethe's influence upon Weston can hardly be overstated. He followed her lead and sometimes flat out copied her style. They were friends, companions, lovers, collaborators, and ultimately estranged. The relationship was in many ways mutually toxic, but since humans are always complicated, it was also mutually essential to their growth as artists. Into the story comes a flood of names. Some you'll know, others you'll soon meet. There is love and there's drama, there's death, and so, so much nudity. It's not a short story, so let's get to it. Margretta Mather was born Emma Caroline Youngren in Salt Lake City on March 4th, 1886. Her parents were Danish immigrants who subscribed to Mormonism. She had a brother and a sister as well as a sister who died at the age of two, and another who died in childbirth. This tragedy also took her mother when Emma was only three. While her father soon remarried, the new couple kept only her brother. Young Emma was sent to live with an older aunt in Household of Joseph Mather, where she was listed in the census simply as a boarder. What brought Emma West, and what eventually allowed her to become Margrethe Mather, was the San Francisco earthquake and fire of 1906. At the age of 20, she was working as an office assistant. Following the call for help, her employer moved west. Emma, it seems, followed. There are several retellings of how and why she moved west. Her own, that she left in a hurry due to a sex scandal, possibly with her employer, is probably not true. At least not completely. The sex scandal does fit what we'll soon learn about her. But neither she nor her employer left abruptly. And though Emma most likely went to San Francisco in 1907, there's no record of her actually being there at that time. In fact, from 1907 through 1909, there's no record of her being anywhere. When she finally emerged, she was Margrethe Mather, a name constructed of her grandmother's first name and Joseph Mather's second name. She never explained to anyone why she changed her name or how she became Margaret Mather, but it is clear that she cut out all family ties and utterly reinvented herself. As a way of making money in the new city, Margreta fell on what had helped her in Salt Lake City, where, according to her telling anyway, a group of businessmen would pay young women for various sexual favors. One of the men visited her in San Francisco and likely supported her financially. She lived in San Francisco for a few years and then moved to Bunker Hill, Los Angeles in 1912. Once again, to make money, she became a sex worker and an escort. This likely didn't last long, stopping after one of her clients had a heart attack and died under her overly energetic service. Margreta befriended artists and anarchists and discovered photography, as she said, because she was bored. A friend, Elmer Ellsworth, a photographer coincidentally from Salt Lake City, had joined the Los Angeles Camera Club and dragged Margreta along. She took to it quickly, and before the year was out, her photo, Made of Arcady, was featured by the club. The photo, her first known, is a vertical shot taken in the woods. A naked woman, perhaps Margreta, is slightly crouched and walking, turned away from the camera. It being a nude would render it only slightly scandalous in those times, but that it was also taken by a woman rendered the image curiously titillating to the mostly male audience of the LACC. But her life was not solely dedicated to photography. Through Elmer Ellsworth, she entered the anarchist movement, linked closely to the labor movement. 
Soon, she was attending suffragette meetings and labor rallies and visiting bohemian enclaves. These were all interconnected. With Ellsworth, she set up speaking engagements for Emma Goldman and other anarchists who came through L.A. Through Ellsworth, she met both men and women, and though she preferred the latter, enjoyed each thoroughly enough. It was also through Ellsworth that she met Edward Weston, and now I guess we've got to talk about this guy. By 1913, Weston was a photographer with a wife and a couple of kids. His studio was in Tropico, now called Glendale. He hailed from Chicago and worked his way up from studio apprentice to the professional career he was a few years into starting. His wife, Flora, played a small role in the business as well. He was a perfectionist and ambitious. More than anything at all, he wanted to be famous. This would be his driving force throughout our story. On a Sunday in October of 1913, Ellsworth and Mather attended what we'd now call a photo walk in Griffith Park. Both were bored of the same scenery that everybody else was shooting and so decided to drop by unannounced upon a studio Ellsworth had passed a few days prior. They scurried themselves down the Tropico and rapped on the door. Edward Weston answered the knock and invited them in. He immediately took to Ellsworth, hardly noticing the woman with the camera. But on second glance, and probably after a long talk about lenses or some shit, he looked again at Margretta and saw that she would make a beautiful model for his own work. A few days later, she posed for him, dressed in a coat with a hat and a ruffled blouse beneath, a vase with a few flowers set next to her. With her head turned slightly up, and the odd bit of a shadow play in the background, it's a disarming image at first glance. You hardly notice it. But upon a second, longer look, it's a wonderfully odd piece of imagery. For the next few weeks, which turned into months, Margreta visited and posed for Weston. They exchanged books, poems, and had a lot of sexy time fun. Though possibly not actually intercourse due to Weston's very convenient definition of marital unfaithfulness. They fell fully and passionately in love with each other. There was, of course, a problem. While Margreta was free as she pleased, Weston was married. This was, apparently, his first affair. He was nervous and limited their time together, though could hardly think of anything but his dear Margreta. Margreta, on the other hand, was also focused upon starting a new club of her own, the Camera Pictorialists of Los Angeles. Essentially, this was a breakaway from the LACC due to the debate that was happening all over the photography scene at the time. Could photography be a means for personal expression, for art? Today, this might seem like a ridiculous argument to have, but in 1914, it was dividing the community. The Camera Pictorialists of Los Angeles was founded in the spring of 1914 with a dozen members, including Ellsworth, Weston, and Mather. Weston, on his own, was finally fulfilling his greatest goal to become famous. Within the wider photography scene, he had shows internationally and was the talk of salons. His latest offerings, including photos of Mather, were all the rage. While Weston basked in his fame, Margreta hung out with Ellsworth, who had just befriended a comedian trying to make a name for himself as Charlie Chaplin, who was just now getting into movies. She'd still see Weston from time to time, but he grew jealous. After all, he had to go home to his wife and kids every night while Margreta partied in Hollywood and organized with anarchists. This got the names of Mather, Ellsworth, and Chaplin on more than a few lists. 
Though now famous, or perhaps because of it, Weston took to dressing oddly for the time. He wore knickers, a roughly brouse, had a walking cane, and a tie that was uh, like a three-thinged tie that all the anarchists were wearing at the time. His home life was tanking, but his social life was taking off. Margreta played little obvious role in this change, but it is clear now that Weston was drawing almost all inspiration from her. He loved his fame, but Margreta was everything he could ever want apart from that. Fortunately for now, her sophistication, her sexuality, her intelligence boosted his own, giving him the confidence he needed to remake himself largely in her image. And it was through Margreta that Weston met the dancers. He would soon study and photograph through 1915. He would exhibit them in the fall and into the spring of 1916. He also published his first nude of Margreta, Nude in Black Shawl, it was called. Through all of Margreta's antics with anarchists and liaisons with the film folk, she and Weston carried on their affair. They somehow also found time to organize the CPLA's first show at LA's New Museum of History, Science, and Art, the city's first proper museum. Each member showed only one photograph which allowed other pictorialists from around the country to take part in the show as well. This included Clarence White, as well as Arthur Lenz's favorite, Anne Brigman, and Imogene Cunningham. Margrethe showed The Stairway, her newest work, a vertical piece showing an outdoor stairway, half in shadow with a woman holding a parasol against the sun. Weston showed his first photo of Margrethe. The show was a great success for the CPLA, but Margreta's lifestyle might have been catching up with her. She would disappear for days at a time, returning with vague explanations that nobody really believed. But when she was on, she was on. In the working relationship, Margreta was clearly the teacher. While he was still exhibiting his photos of dancers and a few of his children, under the periodic and entrancing tutelage of Margaret Mather, his use of shadows, already a signature of his, expanded, becoming characters in their own right. On a summer trip to Chicago, he put this into practice while visiting Eugene Hutchinson, a friend of Margareta, whose work was recently displayed at the CPLA show. The photo he produced of Hutchinson is grainy and blotchy, but the use of shadow for the time was pretty out there. Meanwhile, Margreta was bathing Maud Emily Taylor in a glowing, hazy light. Taylor had been the woman in the stairway, but the tones and focus of Miss Maud Emily invoke a warm, impressionistic dream. The sheer talent required not only behind the camera, but in the dark room to create this photograph was obvious to all who saw it. Margreta was not showing off, but it was clear that she didn't have to. Something drastic had changed, and everyone could now see it. This change might have come in the form of a new studio in a carriage house belonging to beautiful Queen Anne Mansion in the Bohemian neighborhood on the other side of Bunker Hill. She remade her new space into stark, minimalist studio, devoid of most furniture and walls without art. She also lived there, employing a rollaway bed in the nighttime or when needed. This wasn't just a step or two up from where she had worked before. This was several stairways higher than her old studio. How she managed to pull this off, nobody then could really understand. But there was a woman named Florence Reynolds from Chicago. Reynolds often supported artists and leftist causes anonymously, and Margreta only hinted at this later in life. Apparently, Florence became Margreta's intellectual guide and patron. Florence was a known lesbian, and it was suspected that they were having an affair. They were together, in some form or another, 
for the next year or so. The studio was open for other engagements as well, including poetry readings by Carl Sandburg and lectures by Emma Goldman. When she left, Florence gave Margretta a lifetime lease to the carriage house. But with this generous influx of support came a lifestyle that made the free-spirited Margretta uneasy. It was now for her one photography exhibition after another. She, of course, benefited from this, often winning some cash prize, but she was not competitive. She didn't really enjoy this. This, however, was part of the game. There was no way around it. Now influencing each other back and forth, both Weston and Margretta were incorporating shadows into their portraits. Their styles weren't exactly converging. Weston's were still rooted in the foundations of typical portraiture, though to be sure they wouldn't have been mistaken for school portraits. He drew upon Mather's work and amplified it. Margretta's work was becoming more theatrical. There had always been costumes and sometimes props, but her work in 1916 and 17 often depicted an entire scene as much as it showed the person within. It was the following year, 1918, when Weston and Mather could add another third. Ellsworth had been out of the picture for about a year or so. He was still around, but mostly working in Hollywood. But now, into Weston's studio, following another knock on the door, came Johann Hegemeyer. He was tall, dashing, a photographer, and an anarchist. While in San Francisco, he was rightly told by someone that Mather and Weston might be right up his alley. Whoever dealt out this advice was definitely not wrong. Hagemeyer was in need of a bit of cooling off. Upon his arrival in Southern California, he fell in love with a married woman. In order to put that behind him, he devoted himself to Mather and Weston, even moving into Weston's studio. Flora, Weston's wife, was less than thrilled, but Johan promised to do all the cleaning. This vow went mostly unfulfilled. By May, he was evicted, but Flora was taking more of an interest in the studio, wanting to do the books. Though he could no longer be a load to the Weston family, Johan, Edward, and Margreta would remain friends. The following year, due to the Sedition Act, Hagemeyer had to flee the country due to his outspoken anti-war beliefs. Until then, the three were nearly inseparable. But for a time, another came closer to the center. This was Wild Joe O'Carroll, a IWW poet and labor organizer. Margretta was immediately smitten by him. They began an affair that would last a few months. Weston was jealous. But what could he do? Apart from hanging out with Johan and trying to make himself even more famous through various shows and exhibitions. Between her numerous trysts, Margreta began photographing Chinese scholar and poet Moon Kwan, a member of LA's art scene. The four portraits she published of the series displayed just how much she was growing as an artist. Here, she experimented with both shadows and composition. Though her photos are very, quote, oriental in appearance, what was seen as most radical apart from the composition was that she didn't employ racist tropes in photographing a Chinese man. She imbibed the photos with a seriousness that set a new standard. The early days of 1919 found Weston as a father once again. Flora had given birth to their fourth child, but things were not going so well. They couldn't even get together to name the child until several months after his birth. Weston wasn't exactly a great parent. He wasn't abusive or overbearing, but he could only handle the kids one by one. A favorite time for him was reading to them one at a time, before bed. Literally, everything else was left to Flora, including the house, as he unofficially moved out. 
A few months later, he was back, unable to take care of himself. Margreta, on the other hand, was taking care of herself and looking to the future in her own way. Prohibition was coming, and in June, she took a trip up the coast to imbibe as much alcohol as her little body could handle. She joined old friends Johann Hagemeyer and Wild Joe. Feeling more alone than ever, Weston attended a performance by a dancer named Clarence McGee, who went by Ramil to his friends. Weston was soon calling him Ramil and photographing him extensively. Ramil was quickly folded into their circle of friends, but was closest with Weston. They had a short affair, with Weston likely justifying it by not recognizing it as actual sex, and remained very close for the rest of their lives. Margreta, now dry, at least officially so, met a new friend as well. This was Florence Deshawn, an emotionally complex and erratic actress whose career was faltering. She was prone to depression and outbursts. For some reason, a mutual friend suggested she pay a visit to Margreta. The two actually hit it off really well, with Margreta taking at least two photos of her. Florence Deshawn with Rose being typical Mather and honestly, one of the most beautiful portraits ever made. But Margreta and Weston also found time for each other. Weston had been inspired by Ramil's Japanese no dancing. There's no dancing like no dancing. And incorporated some of the aesthetics into a portrait of Margreta called Epilogue. Weston had also clearly been watching the work Margreta was producing. The composition of Epilogue, with Margreta seated in the bottom right corner, plays upon her Moon Quan photos. While Margreta was still working behind the camera later in 1919, she got her first solo show in Boston. And though she couldn't get to Boston herself, her star was clearly rising. The beginning of the new decade found Weston at work. He continued photographing his sons, but also shot Prologue to A Sad Spring, a sort of prequel to Epilogue. Here, the shadows play a vital role, marking it clearly as Weston's work, shot through the eye of Mather. Together, they enveloped Margreta under the shadow of a cherry tree. These two photos, epilogue and prologue, photographed in that order, show Weston first stretching his comfortable boundaries, only to retreat away from the overly modern influence of Margreta, back into the soft focus glow of his previous work. Still, both are astoundingly beautiful. As soon as she met the actress Florence Deshawn, Margreta had been smitten. The feelings were mutual, at least at first. When Florence was new to L.A., Margreta's new friendship made everything a little wild and exciting. But as Margreta kept in contact with a few anarchists under suspicion of anti-war sentiments by the federal government, Florence was put off. Florence had been warned by Max Eastman, and we'll get to who he is in a second. He had known Margreta for a while now, of two things. First, don't let Margreta take publicity portraits. They were too reproachful, he said. And second, do not financially help Margreta. Eastman had been burned before by Big Joe O'Carroll, and he thought Margreta might be pulling the same trick. She wasn't, and that's probably because nobody knew exactly how she got her carriage house studio. Instead, Florence was growing weary of Hollywood in general, a lifestyle that Margreta could embrace and still remain separate from. Florence, however, was spending a lot of time with Charlie Chaplin, even though he had recently married a 16-year-old girlfriend he got pregnant. She had also been in love with Max Eastman, a married anti-war activist who would soon be tried for sedition. Mostly, she was seeing Chaplin to make Eastman jealous. 
This stress, and L.A. in general, was wearing on Florence. Through all of her troubles and breakdowns, Margreta was by her side, as loyal as a sister through the winter and early spring of 1920. The spring also found Mather in her studio, capturing a series of photos of Otto Maitzen as the French clown mime Perriot. Again, she experimented and pushed the bounds of composition using placement and shadow. Weston, for his part, was hanging show after show. As he had always longed for it, his fame was growing. This took him to San Francisco, where he met a slew of photographers like Dorothea Lange, Anne Brigman, and Imogene Cunningham. Returning to L.A., he, along with Ramil McGee, began shooting a series of photos in McGee's attic. The attic in question was finished with white walls and odd angles, each casting its own gradation across the frame. Depending upon how the camera was placed, this created an increasingly surreal backdrop the more Weston experimented. He sent a few prints to Imogene Cunningham, and she loved them, replying, Of course, it is clever, you know that, but is so, so much more. Also in her reply, Imogene referenced a few of Margreta's newest work, gushing over them. Though it was unsaid, at least to Cunningham, Weston was thinking about leaving L.A. He might have told a friend or two, but he kept this from Margreta as well. For now, however, epilogue, his photo of Margreta in the style of Margreta had become famous and in turn had made him even more famous. While the public loved his work, a critic wrote in the magazine Photo Era that he could find nothing redeeming about it. It was, he implied, unconventional simply for the sake of being unconventional. Weston was humiliated and completely reassessed the work he had done since then. Much of it was even more unconventional. He might have taken a break, a step back, at least for the summer. With summer passing, Margreta photographed Florence Deshawn at least once more. The actress was more depressed and frail than ever. She had followed Charlie Chaplin to Utah, where he was editing his film The Kid. Chaplin didn't even bother to notice how ill she was looking. He was also in the middle of getting a divorce. She continued to New York to spend time with her truest love, Max Eastman. But one look at Florence, and he immediately took her to the hospital. She revealed that she had an abortion that was apparently botched. She recovered, and Chaplin, bowler hat in hand, begged her forgiveness. She bounced between lovers for weeks, staying at Eastman's and then Chaplin's and then Eastman's again. Eventually, she returned to L.A., temporarily disliking each man equally. Though still hurting and embarrassed by the bad review, Weston turned to his heart. This time, his affections were for Betty Katz, a card-carrying member of the industrial workers of the world, as well as a friend of their circle who made frequent visits to L.A. before moving there full-time. She had sat for Margareta four years earlier in 1916. This time, however, Weston was so in love that he set aside much of his photography to spend time with Betty. The friendship turned to love and the love to sex, if that's what it was, and then to photography. Finally, he was shooting again. Betty, like Ramil McGee, lived in an attic, complete with odd angles and eaves. He shot a number of photos of Betty in her attic through October and November until she fell ill. She had been suffering from the waxing and waning symptoms of tuberculosis for years now. With another flare-up, she moved back to the dry air of Palm Springs. She apparently left without telling Weston, who penned a sad and lonely farewell letter after learning of her departure. They would keep in touch, and a sort of long-distance relationship continued. He vowed to see no other woman 
apart from his wife. He submitted one of the Betty in her attic photos to various salons. It was generally appreciated, but his critics were growing. He was pushing boundaries again. The sharp angles, the soft focus, the odd composition. Margretta, however, loved it. Edward, she said, that is the loveliest thing you've ever made. But was it enough for him? And was Margretta enough for him? They had been the closest of friends and more, but now where were they? They had loved each other and worked together for eight long years. Friends and lovers had come in and out of their lives and beds, and yet here they were, still together, in a way. Sometime in early 1921, Margretta Mather and Edward Weston entered a compact. Their studio work would be collaborative. Both would co-sign each piece. This placed them as equals. This might typically be seen as a man accepting the woman as his equal, but here it was very much the other way around. Perhaps Margreta understood that Weston's confidence was shaken, and this was her way to help. Or maybe Weston saw Margreta's lifestyle as an impediment to her own work. Either way, they would keep each other honest. While this pact applied to their studio work, they also began having shows together, even entering their photos in competitive salons together. The spring of 21 saw them photographing Carl Sandburg and Max Eastman, strange outdoor portraits, not exactly like either of their previous solo work. They worked with dancers, nudes that were not exhibited locally, but ran in a few magazines. The dozen co-signed photos from this period are good. They are competently composed and skillfully printed but they are strained in a way. There's a conflict within them. There's an uneasiness hiding just beneath the emulsion. This compact and collaboration might have been a way to keep the two failing friends together. Their relationship had fizzled and maybe they'd hoped their art could heal it all away. But each had their own lives now. Both were photographing outside of the collaboration. Margreta captured a close-in portrait of old pal Johann Hagemeyer smoking a pipe with Weston. Meanwhile, Weston had discovered Tina Modotti, a beautiful Italian actress and photographer. All assurances made to Betty Katz were now set aside. Like Margreta, like Ramil, and like Betty Katz before her, Tina Modotti became Weston's world. But rather than set aside photography like he did for Betty, for Tina, he delved into it. While Margreta had remained his model across these eight years, even she was now replaced by Modotti. Weston soaked his photography in soft focus and sensuality. Through the summer, both Margreta and Weston received glowing reviews of their work, which they had submitted together that winter and spring. They exhibited their collaborative work together in July. Margreta also photographed Weston a number of times that summer. Apart from that, their collaboration seemed to be at an end. And apart from various salons and exhibits, they hardly saw each other. Weston blamed Margreta for this as she was staying with Florence Deshawn, consoling her heart as best she could. Max Eastman wouldn't propose, and Charlie Chaplin had recently proposed, but not to her. There was more to it, of course. Deshawn was horribly depressed. She couldn't work and would have lost her car and apartment had Chaplin not stepped in financially. As for Eastman, he and Deshawn had a final falling out in July, with Deshawn cutting him out of her life completely, for now. In some way, Margreta could commiserate though she had always had to be outwardly unflagged. Inwardly, she was heartbroken over the dissolving relationship between herself and Weston, who had lost himself fully in Tina Modotti. For her part, Modotti was backing slowly away from Weston. For years, she had been married to Robo de Ricci, an artist from Portland, Oregon. De Ricci had no idea about Weston's affair with Modotti and invited him, Weston, to live with them both when they moved to Mexico, an idea that was incredibly appealing to Weston. 
What Weston essentially demanded, however, was a monogamous relationship with Madati, with the exception of his wife, Laura, of course. Madati couldn't commit. In a move that should surprise nobody at this point, Madati needed a break and traveled north to visit Johann Hagemeyer for an afternoon of poetry and sex. She confided in Johann about Weston's insistence and how she was probably leaving for Mexico without him. While Madati was away, Margreta and Weston actually found time for a collaborative portrait of the author Floyd Dell. With that, Margreta went back to Deshaun and Weston moped over Tina's imminent departure with Robo for Mexico. They both submitted numerous photos to various salons, both exhibiting new work as well as some old. But by January of 1922, Weston's moping was paying dividends. Robo and Tina Madotti had not yet left for Mexico, and now Tina was reconsidering. Weston understood this from the love letter she penned him. They soon began their affair anew. Margreta had devoted months to the care of Florence Deshawn. With the actress's career gutted by a work strike and her own depression, she felt she had little choice but to move back to New York in hopes of returning to Broadway. Before she left, Margreta took her portrait for the last time. A not-so-hidden motive to Deshawn's return to New York was the hope of rekindling a romance with Max Eastman. But when she arrived, he told her in no uncertain terms that he had to move on. Her effect on him was too destructive. She did not take this well. Two months later, Florence Deshawn met Max Eastman by chance coming out of the subway station at Broadway and 42nd. They walked and talked for a short while before Eastman turned a corner and disappeared. He was apparently retrieving a copy of his new book that he had inscribed for Deshawn. Later that evening, he received word that Deshawn had been taken to the hospital. She had been found spread out on her bed with the gas turned up on the stove. When he arrived at the hospital, he volunteered his blood and the doctors began a transfusion. She died shortly after the session. Word wouldn't reach Margreta for two more days. She learned of it from the Monday, February 6th paper. Weston was shocked, but Margreta was destroyed by the news. She had deeply loved Deshaun. Her mourning would last months. A few days later, word came from Mexico that Tina Madotti's robo had died from some odd infection. He had left for Mexico without Madotti, but shortly before his death, she decided to leave L.A. and meet up with him. Weston planned to follow. She didn't learn of his illness until she arrived in Mexico. She was not allowed to see him, and he died alone. Robo de Ricci had gone to Mexico specifically to set up a show for Margreta and Weston. Following his death, a grief-stricken Madotti threw herself into his work. She returned to California in March after learning her father had died in San Francisco. Weston, still saddened by the deaths, exhibited his work in downtown LA, though Margreta was unable to pull herself together for it. Weston cut his own exhibit short so that Madotti could put on a memorial show for Robo de Ricci. Weston backed off in a way, giving her time to grieve, though he still wished to someday move to Mexico with her. Margreta's period of mourning began to wane in the summer of 1922. The warm air brought with it two artists from San Francisco, Imogene Cunningham and her husband, Roy Partridge. While Roy was setting up a show of his sketchings, Imogene spent afternoons in Weston's studio photographing one of the most beautiful series of couples portraits ever taken. Together, under the view of Imogene's lens, Edward Weston and Margreta Mather were embracing again. They were dancing and collaborating like all the years before. 
Her head rested upon his chest and his cheek upon her head. In one, perhaps the greatest of the series, Margretta crouches behind a seated Weston, her fingers spread oddly over his shoulder. She peers into the lens, and while Weston faced forward, his eyes were attracted to something just out of view. This time, that something just out of view was a trip across the country to New York. He left in October. Upon arrival in the city, he quickly rekindled an affair with a dancer named Hazel Joe Kellogg, with whom he trysted earlier in the year. While Weston explored the city and Miss Kellogg, Margretta was making new friends. In the midst of mourning Florence Deshawn's death, she had spent some time in Weston's studio. One spring day, a 16-year-old boy with a face full of pimples knocked on the door to meet Mr. Weston. Mr. Weston wasn't around, so Margretta entertained him. He was Billy Justima a budding photographer who had been instructed by a mutual friend to seek out Weston. Margretta needed some distraction, and there he was. They ended up talking about the studio cat, Felix. This was the start to a lifelong friendship. It was, as far as anyone could tell, fully platonic. With one relationship starting, another was ending, finally and mercifully. Flora Weston had done everything she could to keep her family together. She knew something of Weston's infidelity, but perhaps not everything. One night in the autumn of 1922, she found herself weeping on the shoulder of not only Margareta Mather, but of Tina Modati as well. Flora had received a letter from Edward where he berated her for holding him back. Both women, hopefully feeling gutted, consoled her, telling her that Edward would be nothing without her. Without her support, Edward would be living in attics and carriage houses like the rest of their friends. When Weston returned to L.A., he took little time in leaving Flora and his children. Margreta blamed Modati for putting the idea of Mexico in his head, but really that thought had been there for years. Still, unable to actually sever cords for real, Weston assured Flora that his friendship with Modati was all business. She was his pupil, and he would be teaching her all about photography while living with her in Mexico. It's unlikely that Flora bought it, but by this point, she was used to living alone and raising the kids. What did it matter if Edward was across town or in New York or even Mexico? Weston spent the winter and spring of 1923 preparing to move south while Margretta composed and photographed still life in her studio. Weston raised money for the move through commission portraits. He began saying his final farewells in March and April. These long goodbyes included a studio session with Margretta. These few odd pieces are cold. In one horizontal view, Margreta is seated on a chair in profile, her head down. She is nude. The floor is wooden, and a wooden box sits behind the chair. The backdrop appears to be brushed metal. The same setting appears at least two more times. Margreta nude with a fan, and in another, Margreta nude facing the camera, her head down, and the bob of her hair obscuring her face. They run from the unwelcoming to the unsettling, and are like nothing Weston had made before. This long goodbye deserves such a series as this, but there was more. In a much closer and more graphic series taken at Redondo Beach, Weston was inspired by Alfred Stieglitz's photos of Georgia O'Keeffe. They were sharp and almost a precursor to the group F-64 photographs to come. They touched the border of exploitation, but it's Margretta, and this was her long goodbye as well. They would spend a lot of time together that spring, even rekindling their affair for a bit. But by July, he, along with Tina Modati, was gone. Traveling with him was his 13-year-old son, Chandler. 
Flora saw them off as they boarded a steamer. Margreta did not. In her journal, she penned a short letter to Weston. Sunday the 29th, 1 o'clock. You have gone, and I had wanted to give you this. New leaves. From my garden, there were no flowers. The following day, she recorded, Monday, July 30th, the studio misses you, and so do I. It had been a decade of photography and love, of friendship and heartbreak. But now it was over. They had grown together, and in that growing, they grew apart. The few weeks towards the end, they were just memories come back to life. But now, in the studio where they once worked, Margreta continued for a time. She changed the studio's name to her own and had a pretty good go at it. A solo retrospective of her work was held in 1924. The following year, for reasons that were probably more business than personal, though still definitely personal, Flora evicted Margreta from Weston's studio. Margreta appealed to Weston for a stay of execution, but he made only the show of objection. The next year, with Madotti having her fill of Weston, he returned to California. Rather than coming back to Flora, or even Margreta, he moved to Carmel-by-the-Sea, still an artist enclave north of the city. Somehow or another, he ended up living with Dorothea Lang in San Francisco. Margreta returned to her own studio in the carriage house and spent a lot of time photographing Billy Justema. She began to lose interest in photography, something that Billy had a hard time accepting. He encouraged her to continue, which is probably why he posed so often for her. She soon became addicted to opium and alcohol, both used to soothe various health problems that were cropping up. Through the later 1920s, she shot mostly still life and various portraits. Her work was good, to be sure, but there was no longer that revolutionary spark that comes from the heart. Her heart was simply not in it. Since his return to the States, Weston had seen Margreta a few times, even spending a day with her once in 1928. Two years later, she was aloof and not responsive to his calls. Billy moved to San Francisco in 1930 and set up a show for her. In preparation, she moved to San Francisco and, with a renewed excitement for photography, began an entirely new series of modernist still life. Patterns mostly of shells and chains and combs and cigarettes. She applied for a grant from the Guggenheim, but it was eventually denied. She was counting upon the money not just for the photography, but to live. Unable to do either on her own, she returned to Los Angeles and moved in with an old friend from her anarchist days named George Lipton. For the next 20 years, the remainder of her life, she lived with George. Through the 1930s, a magazine would occasionally ask her to do some work for them, and she would sometimes make portraits for friends. Apart from that, she was through with photography. By 1940, she had shattered her ankle and could hardly get around on her own. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and was horribly depressed. Her life through the 1940s found her and George back at the carriage house. He was her full-time caretaker now. Though her old flame, Florence Reynolds, had covered the lease in perpetuity, the owner of the property had it condemned in 1952, and they had to move. Though they found a place, the move was too much for Margreta. Her body gave out on Christmas Day, 1952. She was 66 years old. The obituary had her name as Margreta Lipton, though they were never married. She lived with him long enough that it was assumed a common-law marriage. Her career was listed simply as housewife. That pisses me off. Yeah. <laughs> 
From her death until the late 1970s, there was hardly even a footnote in the Edward Weston story. It was Billy Justema who brought her work to the attention of the Center for Creative Photography. They devoted the 1979 issue of their magazine tour after acquiring 132 of her photos. Billy had grown from the pimply boy of 16 into a fashion designer. After publishing a book of his own, he returned his gaze to his old and dear friend, Margaret Mather, so that we might now have her photos and know her story. She should mean much more to photography than simply the naked woman Edward Weston photographed for a bit. Her work was revolutionary. Weston would have been nothing without her, and photography is much more interesting now because of her. All right. That was quite the piece. And there was barely any tears shed. <laughs> barely. Maybe, maybe a, Barely, maybe a meaning there was some. Maybe a little bit. There was a little bit of weeping here and there. It was honestly I'm going to I'm going to toot your horn for you cuz you never will. Um Eric wrote that piece and it's probably one of the most beautiful things he's written nice. so far and I'm so proud of you. Thank you. I don't deserve you. You're amazing. All right. I'm going to be editing that out. Move on. (laughs) Fuck you. You're not. Anyways, it's the best time ever. Is it? Because it's zine time, baby. It's zine time. It's zine time. I don't know why I want to say zine time, but that's it's the zine time. So zine us. Okay. Well, we have one zine review for you this time around. It is called Fool Me Once, Fool You Twice by T. Ferguson. This is a highly saturated, very colorful, almost full color. There's some black and white, 88 page, perfect bound zine made up entirely, almost entirely of double exposures, all of which happened in camera. She'd shoot an entire roll, re-roll it and shoot it again. This allowed for happenstance and serendipity to work their little magic. There is a flow to this zine. There's a story being told. T brings us to a party through the first pages. There are people and confetti, and and as you continue, it becomes more chaotic and messy. The photos blur, and the colors become more vibrant, which contrasts starkly to the black and whites thrown in out of nowhere. Until suddenly, there's stillness, and even a few photos that aren't double exposed. When they return, it's done quietly. And finally, as it ends, there's a feeling of calmness. The back pages of the zine contain some writing, which is also throughout the zine here and there. But in the end, T explains a bit of what's going on behind the scenes. There's also illustrations by a few of her friends that I think go well with the photography. It's a wonder that more of us don't do things like this. In a way, this is also a travel zine. It reminds me of travel, at least. This could have all happened in one night, in one city, but the feeling of movement is always there, even through the quiet parts. Sometimes photo zines feel like miniature photo books, you know, more than they feel like zines. But Fool Me Once, Fool You Twice by T. Ferguson, it fully feels like a zine, and it absolutely should. And you should absolutely buy this. She ships pretty cheaply from the UK, and it's less than $12 because the British pound is kind of shit right now. You can follow T at t.ferguson on, it's T-E-E dot Ferguson on Instagram. Pick up her zine or Etsy shop, T on film, T-E-E on film. The link will be in the show notes. As always.
All Through a Lens is made possible by our generous and amazing Patreon subscribers. Through their small monthly donations, we are able to afford to keep this podcast up and running, baby. Patreon helps us cover expenses for hosting, for audio equipment. It helps us buy books for research and zines to review. To our Patreon subscribers, we're coming up close to 100, which is just like unfucking believable. Thank you so much. This podcast literally could not be done without you. And we've got a new subscriber for this episode. So it's a big, huge welcome to Michael A. Thank you, Michael. We just enjoy your stay with us, I guess. Yeah. yeah enjoy all the bonus content. Um, there's quite a lot up there now, and it's really neat to look through that. Uh, when you subscribe to us on Patreon, you get a monthly bonus episode. You get uh, full-length interviews, which includes the interview with Travis in this episode, some random posts and some photos, and much, much, <laughs> sometimes there's a lot of extra nonsense. We've got three different levels of support with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So head over to patreon.com slash lens for more info. So, Vanya, it looks like we're winding down another show. This one was... We are. This was, hey, this was, a, this was something, huh? This is our... It was. This is our penultimate show of the year. Yeah. It was kind of... What do you've got going for yourself in this coming week? Ooh. Well, um, I'm trying to meet up with some photographers... The lady that I was convincing can do four by five. I need to go see Alan's art studio in downtown. And I think another listener just, you know, walk around, do some shooting. Yeah, I'm going to be social. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how that goes for me. Okay. How about you? Um, honestly, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of anticipating the little break that we'll be taking after... Mm. It's sort of after Christmas and through the new year, through most of January. We'll have more on that next episode. Speaking of that, next episode will be our final episode of the year. Oh my the God. Big 7-5. That is Ooh. diamond. Look I think it's that. leaving that on 75. I like it. Yeah, we're not leaving it. We'll be back. And we'll have yes. some some dev parties for you throughout there, too, throughout the break, like we do in the summer. It won't be as long of a break as the summer break, though. No, definitely not. Well, just a few weeks. Yeah, and until then, I think I'm just going to try to figure out what we're doing for that final episode. Who will have? Yeah. I think maybe we'll just keep it a family show. We might. Yeah, I I definitely got a few really amazing books recently that I am excited to do some research. But I also don't like I'm been very distracted mm -hmm. lately, and I really want to spend a decent amount of time reading these books. Well, I'm working on a little bit of a film detective jaunt of my own. There is a photographer who I've discovered from long ago and want to figure out more about them. And I think I will have something small. I don't think there's much out there. But something small for you in that respect for the next episode. So hopefully that'll consume me completely. That'll be fun. As for shooting, I don't know. Maybe. What's coming up with the next dev party, Vanya? You don't know. I want to talk about lint. Oh God, really? I've had a few people ask me about like, well, okay, how do you, all this lint, now what? I mean, we're gonna get into like the molecular structure of lint, the different kinds of lint. Some of it is skin, which is 
gross, but true. But some of it is different fibers. And so we'll be looking at and examining the different fibers of cotton, rayon, polyester. There's, we can even do some silk fibers and we'll have them under microscopes and you can all tell the difference between each of the fibers so that when you're going to erase them from your images using Photoshop, you'll know what you're erasing. And that's very important. Really though, what's more important is we'll talk to you a little bit how to avoid lint. Steps you can take nice. to avoid lint. Not exist, I guess, and be very, um, like put yourself in plastic, like the one guy that murders people in in Florida. The one <laughs> guy in what, Florida, huh? Yeah, well, you know, like the, <laughs> the, you know, the show with a guy with, a, you know. George W. Bush. So <laughs> is there anything else we need to tell them, Vanya? Will you search through the lowly earth for me? Climb through the briar and bramble. Thank you for listening to Ultra Lens. And a big thank you to Travis Kennedy for talking to us. You can follow his work at Travis underscore Kennedy and at Better Off Scene on Instagram. And we're at ultralens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's ultralens.podcast at gmail. And we're at ultralens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes and photographs on ultralens.com. Vanya is at Surf Martian on Instagram. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers <laughs> on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff. Hashtag ultralenspodcast to be featured. Find us on Spotify or any podcast app subscribe and leave a review and thank you all so so very much for listening we love you um Vanya yes do you want to go out and shoot fuck yeah I do let's go there was this thing and it was like for some reason, I was obsessed. Like, the bubble tape. I just wanted to take a bite of it. Like, just, like, instead of doing strip by strip, I just wanted to take it and just, ah, just take a huge bite of it. <laughs>